Welcome to part two of the five-part series of breaking down the book, The Catalyst, and basically giving you every which way to remove every roadblock your customers have to guarantee that you create change and they move into your world. And in part one, if you haven't listened to that yet, I highly recommend you go listen to part one first. We covered reactants, and today we cover endowment and how to ease endowment to make sure that people come to you, they close deals with you, they opt in with you, they follow you on social, and they take a step in your direction. So the intro is not going to do any justice, so I'm going to stop bumping my gums and let's cue the intro. Are you ready to ethically scale your business? Good. Because this is the Mind of George podcast, where relationships beat algorithms and depth is the only direction when it comes to ethically scaling your business. Each Monday and Friday, I'll be the guy between your ears in the hoodie and pink shoes guiding you home, giving you the tools to extract, honor, and amplify your genius so you can be the light for your customers. Sound fabulous? Cool. Let's get into the episode. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mind of George Show. Today, we're in part two of five. You remember... Now, listen to me. If you have not listened to part one of five, I highly recommend you go back a couple episodes. Part one of five was all about reactants. And so we are breaking down in five parts the five most critical things to understand about humans, the human experience, and human psychology to ensure that you can help move your ideal customers closer to you and achieve their results without creating an anti-marketing machine by creating reactants, which is everything that we covered in part one. And so this is part two of the five-part series from the book, The Catalyst by Jonah Berger. This book, if you haven't heard my other episode, is a Bible for me. It is a literally step-by-step Bible on how to operate in our businesses, in our relationships, in our communication with our customers, and with our team. And I make it required reading for anybody that's in my world. And so if me doing a five-part podcast series about this book is not a glowing enough review that makes you want to pick up the book, I am definitely not your guy and you should not listen to this podcast anymore. But if you are in the business of helping people, whether you're coaching or selling products or making offers or trying to do anything in the world that generates a dollar by making a difference, this book is required reading. And so today we're gonna go through part two of the book. We're gonna go through part two. And remember, there were the five key pillars that he covers in the book. They are under the acronym REDUCE. Uh, I believe it's reduced. Yeah, hold on. Let me spell it in my brain. R E D. Yes, yes. Okay, my brain went blank for a minute, but I was complete. Okay, it is reduced. So in the five parts, he talks about reactants. He talks about endowment. He talks about distance, uncertainty, and cooperating evidence. And so today we're going to be talking about endowment. And remember, in catalysts, what do catalysts do? Catalysts are things that create change. And what we covered in part one of this episode or part one of this series is that the only persuasion is self-persuasion. And the harder we push, the deeper our people dig their heels in. And ultimately, our job is to create a catalyst for change, a catalyst that gets them to persuade themselves to take a step forward into our direction. And there are five horsemen of inertia, as he calls it. And these are the five key roadblocks that inhibit change. And what those are is that we have to reduce reactants, ease endowment, shrink the distance, alleviate uncertainty, and find cooperating evidence. And in part one of the podcast, I took you all the way through reactants, what it is, what happens, how it shows up, and then four steps to remove it. And so today, we're going to be covering endowment. 
In endowment, we're going to go over the same thing. We're going to talk about what it is and then steps to remove it so that now you have the second horseman of the five horsemen of inertia or the ability to remove the second roadblock that people need to move closer into your world. Now, one of my favorite parts in the first episode in part one is what we talked about, the four things that people need for persuasion. And this goes all the way back to Aristotle. Number one was logos, which is the logical appeal. It's ensuring that our message makes sense, that it's logical. And then we have the pathos, which is the emotional appeal. It's that our appeal stirs the emotions of our audience, pointing in the direction of our message, and that we demonstrate emotion in the delivery of our message. And then we have the third part, which is the ethos, which is the ethical appeal. And that's ensuring that we come across as credible, that we know our stuff, that we're trustworthy, and that we come across as trustworthy, and that we do not seek to mislead. And then the fourth part, which was not from Aristotle, it was somebody in his time that came after, was mythos, which is the narrative appeal, which is our use of stories, our inclusion of our audience into our ongoing story that can be a very persuasive tool. And so when we have those four, people feel safe to come into our world. They feel safe and open to make a change. But then if we're not careful with what we do after it, we can have the opposite effect, which is to move them further away from us, preventing any change. And the first part was reactance. And today we're going to talk about endowment. And so let me take a sip of my water out of my beautiful pink mug. Which, by the way, if you're listening to this and not watching, I have my beautiful pink ice shaker that says relationships beat algorithms with a big lighthouse on it because ice shaker, they're friends and they sponsored our last event. And these things are incredible. And yes, it's pink and everybody wants one. But here's the rule. There's only one way to get one. You have to come to our event and then you can get one. So that's where they are. But if you're seeing it, you're a little jealous of the pink. That's what it is. So let's talk about endowment. And I want to start with a quote from the book. If potential gains barely outweigh potential losses, people don't change. In order for people to change, advantages have to be at least 2.6 better or larger than their current situation, which means if somebody is doing something in their life, let's say they're generating revenue and they are working towards it and they're doing it a certain way, in order to convince them or them to convince themselves to stop what they're currently doing, it would require showing a 2.6% or 2.6x potential increase in what's there in order for them to even be open to change, right? That's insane when you think about it. But now let's have another question. Why when somebody gets injured, is recovery faster for a more severe injury rather than a mild injury? It's because with a more severe injury, people are almost forced to do their physical therapy for serious injuries. But for lesser injuries, they tend not to marshal or give the same energy to the same resources because it doesn't hurt. And so most of the time, even if people have a plan, they will not follow it. It is hard to get people to change when things are not terrible or just okay or not great. And one of my favorite parts from the book in this chapter on endowment, which by the way, if this has not gotten you to buy the book, The Catalyst by Jonah Berger yet, I don't know what will. And by the way, I don't know Jonah. I've only exchanged a couple of emails with him, 
but I've probably single-handedly sold more of his books than anybody, but these things are Bibles, as I said. But there's one example in the book that I love, and it's the story of a financial advisor who had a client who was getting a return every year over year on his investment. And she kept telling him about the potential. Well, if you move your money, you'll get a, a 5% increase or a 4% increase. And he's like, no, I'm good. No, I'm good. Because he had endowment to how it was currently doing it. And so she tried this strategy for a couple of years and it did not work. But then the most beautiful thing happened. Instead of telling him what he can gain, she started to tell him the potential loss. And so she knew that if he had moved his portfolio into that fund, she had the historical data for 12 months to show. And she showed him that if you had moved your money when I told you to move it, you would have made X amount of dollars, but she didn't say that. She said, hey, John, I just want you to know over the last 12 months, you've lost $110,000. And he about shit his pants. It's like, what, what, what? And she's like, yeah, that's what you lost out on because we didn't move your money. And so what she was able to do is she was able to demonstrate the cost of inaction rather than the potential cost of gain. And so we have to understand that catalyzing change isn't just about making people more comfortable with new things. It's about helping them let go of old things. And so as the old saying goes, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. People are wedded to what they are already doing. And unless what they're doing is completely terrible, then they don't want to switch. And so to ease endowment or people's attachment to the status quo, catalysts highlight how an action isn't as costless as it seems. Translated to, catalysts help demonstrate the actual cost of inaction to collapse the cognitive dissonance that people think, oh, it's okay if I just stay the same. And what's, under, what's beautiful about understanding this, and, and it's really important to see, is that we have to understand humans. We have to understand psychology. We have to understand our brains. And it turns out that once we have something, like once we own something, once we're in something, once we're in a habit, or once we're endowed with it, we start to become attached to it. And consequently, the more attached we become, the more we value it. And our level of ownership even increases the perceived value of the beliefs and ideas. Because when something is ours, we value it more. And so let's give some examples. Let's talk about homeownership. And this is an example that's used in the book. The longer people do or own something, the more they value it. The longer homeowners have lived in a home, for example, the higher the value they have, the higher the value. Tongue twister. The longer that somebody has owned the home, the more value they hold it or the higher they value it over the market price. The more they become attached to it, the harder it becomes for them to give it up. And I actually fell victim to this because I lived in a home that we built and we renovated and we customized and we didn't customize it for the market. We customized for itself. But I will never forget when the realtors came, the appraisers came. I had a number in my head and I was like, oh, it's worth that. It's worth that. It's worth that. And the truth was, it was worth a hundred grand less than that. And that's happened to me quite a few times. I remember when I was selling my really expensive car that I didn't need anymore. And I paid an absorbent amount of money for this car. And I was like, oh my God, like I took care of it. It was incredible. I should get the same of what I paid for it, even though I put 20,000 miles on it. And I really believe that. And then this shock hit me when I put it on the market. And I got, you know, I got over six figures for the car. 
But what I didn't get was anything close to the 25 grand difference that I thought I should have got. And I actually had the same thing. Like, for example, I've been getting rid of old camera equipment that I don't need anymore. And I remember I paid like $3,000 or $3,500 for these cameras and I barely used them. I took care of them and it was brand new. And so in my brain, I'm like, oh, this is easy. I'll just sell this camera for $1,000. I'll recoup some of it. It'll be worth it. I accept the going market price was only $400. And so then I sat on the cameras for five months longer instead of getting rid of them because I was like, no, I'll find somebody, I'll find somebody. And then when I finally made the decision to get rid of it, it went down another $100 because new technology had come out. And so we have to understand that the longer somebody is endowed with their habits, the longer they are ingrained with it, the more they value it. And the more they value it, the more they feel like they own it and it becomes harder to change. And so whenever people think about changing, they compare things to their current state, the status quo, we will call it. And if the potential gains barely outweigh the potential losses, they will not budge. And so to create change, the perceived gain has to be 2.6 times higher than the current situation. And I know I said this at the beginning of the episode, but I have to say it again. To create change, the perceived gain has to be 2.6 times higher than the current situation in order for somebody to feel that it's time for them to change. Now, what this leads into is what he called switching cost, because there are switching costs to changing everything. If you try to get somebody to change a grocery store, now they went from having a routine and knowing where everything is in the store to being in a new store and having to figure out where things are. So that would make somebody drive 10 minutes, 15 minutes further because the cost of changing feels too great to switch. So they'll inconvenience themselves and drive further. You think about like having a tennis partner, right? Maybe you play tennis and it's like, if you've had a tennis partner and you get a new one, you have to relearn each other how to communicate, how to play, who does what, right? Let's think about offices. When you change offices, if you worked in an office or a corporate office or your own office and you change, now you have to reset it up. You're like, oh, I have to move stuff. Where's it going to go? I have to reorganize it. There's a cost. I think about my office, the one that I'm in right now in the studios that I've personally built with my bare hands. And the fear I have is that if I ever lose this place or I move out, I'm going to have to redo this again. And I don't feel like I can set it up the same. And I know that I can. But there's costs associated with everything, right? And then you have strategies. And there's people that I still watch using marketing strategies that have not worked for four or five years, but they're comfortable with them. And because they're comfortable with them, they would rather do it and not get a maximum result or be effective than pay the cost of switching. And so what all of this stuff means is that it actually makes it easier to just stick with what was done before, even if it isn't perfect. And this, my friends, is why when people try to convince people or tell them what to do or do this one thing or do it now or follow these seven steps and you have to do it, the first thing it does is increase reactance like we covered in part one, which actually digs their heels in further. And then they start seeing it through the lens of evidence collection that, of course, I can't change. Look, you're telling me I have to change everything. I already know what I'm doing. I do it in three steps. You want me to do seven and boom, boom, boom. And then it actually deepens their endowment to how they're currently doing it, making it even harder for them to switch and less likely for them to switch to you. And so there are a few ways that you can ease endowment, i.e. remove that roadblock, because we have to remember 
to change anybody's mind, we have to remove roadblocks. And the first roadblock we covered was reactants. And the second roadblock, the one that we're talking about today, is endowment. And so how do we ease endowment? For example, how do we reduce or remove this roadblock so that they understand what's possible? So the number one thing that we must do is we must surface the cost of inaction. And so when the status quo is terrible, it's easy to get people to switch. So for example, if you are living in a home and a storm comes and it floods your house and there's literally a waterfall pouring through your ceiling, that is terrible. You are going to change really, really quickly. But let's say if you're in that same home and there's like a slow drip or a slow leak and you plug it and you have people coming out, you might not change as fast, but what you might not see is all the mold behind the wall because that so drip has been there. But because the status quo isn't terrible, it's not as easy to get people to switch because they're like, oh, it's not that bad. So people are willing to change when the status quo is terrible because inertia isn't a viable option. So if your place is infested with roaches, you have to call an exterminator. The only question is which one to call but you're not going to sit there and just wait and wait and wait. You're going, to crawl, you're going to call and get it handled immediately. So to overcome endowment, what we have to do is we need to help people realize the cost of doing nothing. That rather than being safe or costless, sticking with the status quo actually has a downside. And this is the number one tilt for endowment. And so we'll use that financial advisor as an example. The gentleman, I just called him John, was not open to moving and moving and moving. And though for the next 12 months, as she was managing his portfolio, she actually told him, hey, John, you lost 110 grand. And I don't remember the number for the book. Don't quote me. And he was shocked. And he's like, no, I didn't. And she's like, yes, you did. Because if you changed 12 months ago, you would have made that money. And so one of the things that I like to help people do is I, help to, I like to help them realize the cost of not implementing a customer journey. Because people are convinced, oh, I'll build a customer journey when I have more customers. But they don't realize that for every 10 customers coming in, eight of them are leaving due to their lack of journey. And they haven't realized the potential loss, the revenue loss, or the marketing loss and the anti-marketing machine that's being created with their company because people aren't using their product. And so there's a lot of times with companies that I have to highlight like, hey, what you're not realizing is that every day you don't do this. You're feeding a machine that's broken and it's actually costing you a massive amount of money out the back end. And luckily, I've been doing this long enough that I can statistically show them with data and numbers. And when I do that, they change quick. And so the number one way to remove endowment or to ease endowment is to be able to surface or bring to the surface the actual cost of doing nothing, which then leads to the second part. And remember how we talked about switching cost. Well, one of the reasons that people won't change is because there's a cost of switching. And this is where customer journey comes in so much. Part number two about easing endowment is to have a plan. So you have to eliminate the switching cost by having a clear plan and a customer journey that maps out exactly where they're going to go and how easy it's going to be. This is why I harp on it so heavily. And so what I constantly ask myself and my customers and my students is what are you doing to ease the cost of switching? And so what does that mean? Well, the more that somebody has to think for themselves or do on their own, 
the less likely they are to change. But if I ask you, you know, what are your fears about change? You're like, well, I don't know how to do that. And I'm like, oh, we mapped it out already. And like, well, I don't know how to do that. I'm like, oh, we designed it for you already. Or yeah, but how am I supposed to remember this? I'm like, oh, we made a checklist for you. And all we're doing, and you hear me talk about this with pre-handling objections, is we're making sure that if switching cost is a pain point, that we have a solution that mitigates it to ease the endowment, to allow somebody to be more open to moving forward and actually changing. And so that's step two. And step three of easing endowment is to burn the ships. Now, I don't tell people to burn the ships when it comes to business, but when it comes to doing things that do not support you, I tell you to burn the ships. And so rather than thinking about whether a given new thing is better than the old one, by helping to take inaction off the table, burning the ships encourages people to set aside the old and instead think about which new thing is worth pursuing. And here's how you do that. When you surface the cost of an action, when you can show buddy, show somebody how much it's costing them by not changing, they are ready to burn the ships. But in order to commit, they need to have a plan which you've laid out or a path that they must follow. And then I don't like to compare old versus new. I want to take old off the table. And so my version of burning the ships is that instead of saying, hey, you can keep doing it your way or you can do it this one new way, what I like to say is your old way will never work. But here are two new ways, one and two. And so by presenting two new paths for them or two new offers for them or two new directions for them in their brain, it typically eliminates the old one. And so they are no longer comparing old to new. They are comparing new to new and figure out which path forward is going to be best for them. And so those are the three steps to eliminate endowment. And so you have to remember these things when you're thinking about your customers, when you're thinking about your marketing, when you're on sales calls, when you're having conversations in every ounce of what you're doing, because it's really easy to fall in the trap of like stacking of like, well, you could do this and do it this way and do it this way. And you have to do it now. And that creates the reactants. But remember in the beginning of the first episode, I said, what you have to think about is who is the person and then where are they? And then when you can empathize with what their current patterns are and their current beliefs are, you are aware of what they're comparing the new with, and you can start to ease that endowment to move them forward. And so number one, you get to surface the cost of inaction. You get to show them what it's actually tangibly or measurably costing them by not changing. And when that is clear and they're like, okay, I'm ready, you ease it even more by having a plan. You eliminate switching costs. You give confidence and clarity that this new way is actually going to be easier. And most of the objections and the roadblocks have been removed. And when those two things have been done, then it's time to burn the ships. But people might still be holding on just a little bit. And so if you give them one option and they're like, yeah, but you know what? I hear you and I got it, but it's still a little bit easier. They're going to be comparing old versus new. And I don't want them to think about old because I know old is costing them and hurting them and not helping them, but both versions of new will. So instead of old versus new, I give them new versus new, which allows them to choose which path forward is best, but not allowing them to fall back and staying where they are. And so part two 
of reduce, number one was reaction, which the R is reaction, and E is about easing endowment. And so when we ease endowment, what we're basically doing is we're loosening up the roots for people's current behaviors and beliefs so that when it's time and they're ready to go, they can transplant themselves from one pot to another without those roots, like pulling them back and convincing them not to go. And this is another reason why customer journeys are so powerful. I've found that one of the greatest ways to ease endowment is through time and touch points. And so sometimes this happens in a day, in a conversation, in a minute, in an hour, or sometimes it happens over months, which is why customer journeys are so powerful and why I teach them to you. And I'm like, hello, reach out if I can help you. You're going to want one. You're going to need one to be effective because once you start to understand why people aren't buying, people aren't committing, people aren't sticking and they're not changing, which is what I'm teaching you in this five-part series, then you'll understand the importance of a customer journey so that when they're in these phases or these roadblocks exist, that your world is designed to remove them already. And so that, my friends, is what we have for part two of the reason that people don't change from the book, The Catalyst by Jonah Berger. And so if you have not gotten the book yet, I highly recommend you get the book. And as you listen to these episodes, over the next coming time, I want you to be reading along in the book so that you can utilize them and put them into practice. So part one was about reactance. If you have not listened to that yet, go back and listen to it. Part two today, this one is about endowment. This one is about endowment, okay? And part three coming up is going to be about distance and collapsing the distance that someone must travel to create change, which is one of my favorite, favorite chapters of the book. And it's one of the easiest things to change in your life and in your business to help people take a step towards you in that positive direction. And so that's what I got today. So as always, I appreciate you. Uh, as I said in the last episode, I could really use your help. You're a part of my team. You're a part of my movement. You're a part of my life. And I love helping and serving you. I need your help. I need more reviews on this podcast so more people find it and more guests want to come on and share their expertise with you. And then I would love it if you sent this to a friend, you told them about it, you tell them why it's a good listen to help me spread the good word because I can't do this alone and I can keep doing it with you as long as you help. And so I feel like I've given you enough value in 280 something episodes to earn that share and that ask. And so I ask that you please do that because it makes a difference for me, makes a difference for my team, it makes a difference for you, and it makes a difference to the people that you are sharing it with. So as always, I am excited to be here. I am so glad that we got to record this today and I'm excited to share the next parts with you. So remember that relationships will always beat algorithms. And until next time, I will either see you. Nope. Yeah, I will either see you on the next podcast or you will hear me in your earballs. But either way, I think I need to stop recording today because I'm getting a little tongue twisted. Have a beautiful day. I appreciate you. I love you. And I can't wait to hear from you. Here comes the outro. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Mind of George show. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite channel that you listen to, whether it's in the car, on your run, or in front of the television. Make sure you leave a review to help other people know how much you love the show and quite frankly, help me know how much you love the show because I read them all. And if you want five-minute daily insider nuggets on business, marketing, leadership, mindset, or any other tool that you would need to build and scale your company, make sure you register for my invite-only newsletter. I call it the Lightkeeper Lessons. 
I hold nothing back here and I share everything that works for me, my friends and mentors, and thousands of my students around the world to thrive in life and keep our lighthouses shining brightly. We will eventually be charging for this, but for now, for you, because you're listening to the podcast, it's free. So if you want to sign up, go to www.lightkeeper.club, fill out the application, and then check your inbox because it's magic. You actually have to open the emails to get the gifts inside. Otherwise, you can get access to my Relationships Beats Algorithms Facebook community and other free resources on the website. So just go to www.mindofgeorge.com, and I'll see you in the next episode.